um, we're calling the sermon Seeing and Being Seen. Um, and I want to pray just for a moment that the Lord would enable us to see what he wants us to see today. Lord, we pray along with the psalmist, open our eyes, Lord, that we might behold wonderful things in your truth. Amen. Calling it seeing and being seen uh, because strewn throughout the passage are actual notations of when someone is seeing or not seeing, and sometimes it's they're perceiving or not perceiving, they're getting it, they're not getting it. And then there's also the element of those who are often discarded, marginalized to the side and think, does anyone see me? In fact, we mentioned this weeks and weeks ago, Andy Crouch in his book called The Life That We're Looking For. He begins his chapter, begins his book with the story of what we do instantly as infants. We are looking to lock on with a set of eyes that recognize us. That we can only know ourselves when we have been recognized, been seen by others. Now, seeing, being seen, that's one thing. That's that human longing we've been all uh, is put in with in each of us. And then sin has messed that up. But also just seeing, seeing to understand who Jesus is. What is his mission about? Who are we as people who belong to him? I love that our students are going to study that on Wednesday night, our identity in Christ. But a lot of times when life hits us, it's hard, even as Eric described, it's hard to put all the pieces together and make sense of it and find a little bit of peace, a little bit of satisfaction, a little bit of congruency, if you will. It's hard to see. Um, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, back in the 90s, they had those posters that you're supposed to stare at them and eventually you see a picture behind all the blurred, you know, neon, and I could never see it. But I think another example of Buddy's inadequacies to see um, would, would happen when uh, perhaps some of you, I know some of you, know cars really well. Well, you could come and you could show me and I could, I could tell you, you know, yeah, that's the engine and that's where I would check the oil. But you start, you start mixing in words like carburetor and beyond and this and that. Like, I can look at it all day long and I cannot see what you are saying. I do not see how in the world I'm going to be able to do anything with it. Um, Caleb, I'll pick on you. Caleb West knows cars really well. And he said, oh, well, did you check this? I'm like, how about if you come over and check that? Because, not because I want to be mean to him, but because I know that I have an inability to see in order to make something work, right? Well, we're going to see that throughout the passage today. In fact, the first section um, as the kings uh, read so well, you're gonna, we're going to see the disciples, and the, the disciples can't see it. They can't see, well, if you're Messiah, what you're telling us is going to happen doesn't fit. It's not congruent with our categories and what we were expecting and anticipating and hoping that we were sidling up next to you because we're going to be right there in line when you establish your kingdom. And so the first section is we can't see it, and then there's actually... Um, with that mission confusion, if you will, in their heads, there's, now he's going to get, Luke's going to give two pictures as Jesus is now about to get to Jerusalem. We've been on the way to Jerusalem for a while. He's 17 miles away. And he's going to give us two scenes in the town or the vicinity of Jericho, a very uh, wealthy and important city. And it was the last stop for pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem. 
And now we know as he's going to Jerusalem, which he'll eventually get to the cross, that's going to be during the Passover time. And so lots and lots of people are traveling through. And we're going to see two scenes, while the mission is still confused in the disciples' minds, two scenes of Jesus' mission embodied by himself. What is your mission about as a Messiah? We're confused about some things you say it's going to, going to have to happen, but also... What does that kingdom look like? What does that mission that you're on look like? Now, he wouldn't have told them, I'm resolutely set for Jerusalem, but Luke tells us that. And it was, they understood. They saw it determined in his face. And Luke kept skipping a rock through this section of Luke. And while they were on the way to Jerusalem, and on their way to Jerusalem, and as they were going to Jerusalem. So mission confusion with the disciples, and then two pictures of that mission embodied. And what I want us to see is what I believe Luke wants us to see, is the idea of seeing. What is seeing that is really seeing? So that the connection is made for us between us and Jesus and God's kingdom mission. And then what does that look like as Jesus embodies it for us, including the idea that it includes those who we think would be on the outside and never seen and ignored and treated indifferently or without a thought, they're actually the ones who are being sought. And they eventually, if, if God opens their eyes, they also have their eyes open to the fact that they are seen by the God of the universe when they haven't perhaps experienced being seen by anyone. So let's walk our way through it. First of all, can't see it. The disciples in verses 31 to 34, they struggle to make sense of what, Jesus, what awaits Jesus in Jerusalem. They're seeing, they're with him. They know they're traveling to Jerusalem. They've actually, Luke, multiple times, two times in Luke 9, and then other hints throughout this section as we get here, Jesus keeps saying, now we're going to go up and the Son of Man is going to suffer to the chief priests and the leaders, and he's going to be, he keeps saying that, but now it's getting more and more detailed and explicit in this section. And he says, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets about the son of man will be accomplished. Son of man is power packed. We've unpacked it a little bit. It's a messianic title. You can look at Daniel seven. It's that picture of one who is the son of man so he can relate to all humanity, but it's also the one who's coming to take names. The one who's coming in power and authority. He's saying, and he, Jesus refers to himself that way. It's a third person, you know, the son of man, this and the son of man, but he's referring to himself. And he says, all, all things that were promised or prophesied through the prophets or what we know as the Old Testament, they're going to all, those things that were written are going to be accomplished or fulfilled. What are those? Verse 32, he'll be handed over to the Gentiles. Again, Luke's getting more detailed. He had already pointed out the Jewish leadership's going to be involved. Now he points out the Gentiles will be involved, meaning particularly the Romans. Jesus will be, or the Son of Man will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they've scourged him, they will kill him. We know that on a cross. And the third day he will rise again. And Jesus, what he's telling them, he wants them to see he's headed straight for hatred, humiliation, and death in Jerusalem. 17 miles down the road, all of what was written about by the prophets will happen or be accomplished. And in Luke's gospel, again, he's already forecasted this, his fate several times, and each time revealing more specifics. 
But this time he includes those Gentiles being involved in his mistreatment and his death. So he's saying this suffering that the Son of Man, meaning himself, that I'm going to go through was previewed in writing by the prophets. I want to give you, just for a moment, a sampler platter. There are way more than I'm going to go through. But they were confused by this. This didn't fit their categories because they thought Messiah, they thought throw off the pagan, you know, thumb over us, throw it off, be a conquering king, and now we're in the good stuff. That's what they thought. They had no category for suffering that they thought. And so here's a little sampler. He says, I want, all, I want you to know all the things written about the Son of Man will be accomplished. And then he mentions a bunch of suffering, mistreatment, and death. And here's what I want to do. Right before we get to the blind man, I want us to actually, I want everyone to close your eyes. I want you to close your eyes because I'm just going to read a couple of these passages from the Old Testament and see if you can see with your mind's eye these passages one from Psalm 22, one from Isaiah 53. See if you can see these being experienced by Jesus in a few days from what um, they're about to watch him go through, through the trials, mockery, suffering, and death on a cross. So close your eyes and listen. First of all, from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now, one more. Keep your eyes closed. From Isaiah 53, which is known as the suffering servant passage. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Okay, you can open your eyes. As you heard those, one of them a psalm of David, Uh, One of them from Isaiah 700 years before what Jesus is going to happen in a a few days to Jesus. Could you see that? They, They gambled over his clothing. They mocked him. They stared at him. Well, hey, you're supposed to, you know, be the Savior. Why don't you save yourself? Why don't you come down off that cross? They drove a crown of thorns in his head. They spit on him. These are just a couple of examples of passages that point to the suffering of God's promised Messiah. And Jesus says we are now entering into that experience only 17 miles away. He spells it out very plainly what's about to happen and will be fulfilling all that the prophets promised. But the disciples can't see it. 
and by can't see it, he says three times they can't understand. They're not getting it. They can't make it go together with what they thought Messiah would be like. It says um, that they didn't understand it. They couldn't grasp the meaning of it. They couldn't see how what Jesus was forecasting could possibly fit together with their concept of Messiah and the kingdom. Suffering, humiliation, and death makes no sense. Well, why? Why didn't they get it? They've been with him now for three years. They've heard him say this forecast in various forms several different times. Why? Well, verse 34, look there, it tells us why. This statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. Why? What was the reason for their denseness? It's because God in his sovereign wisdom and plans knew it wasn't time yet. They weren't ready to understand it all. They could have botched it, potentially. So God kept it partially hidden from them. For now, God prevented their synapses. You know what those are? There's synapses from firing fully. Synapses is how you make connections. Thus, their inability to see and put together the full puzzle of who Jesus is and why, as Messiah, he would need to suffer and die and rise. It just didn't fit what they expected and hoped for. Well, that's why. When will they get it? Well, not until after Jesus' resurrection. We won't go through these. I'm just going to give you a quick synopsis. If you... We went through it on Easter. You go to Luke 24, and they're on the, a couple of them are on the road to Emmaus. This is now the resurrection day. And uh, they're dejected, confused. They can't put it together. They're walking this road to Emmaus, and Jesus joins them. But it says in that passage that they were prevented from recognizing him somehow. And Jesus asked, hey, what, what's going on? <laughs> um, and they're like, are, are you the only one who doesn't know what's been happening the past few days? with Jesus of Nazareth, who we were hoping was the Messiah, and yet the religious leaders rejected him. He was crucified and buried. Now some of our women are, and our band of followers are telling some crazy story about, how, about him rising from the dead. And it, it's the third day after these things have happened. Now what did we just hear? So they're recalling all that, and, and then uh, Jesus says this to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them, he put it together, all the things concerning himself in the scriptures. They don't recognize him till the end and the breaking of bread, and then he vanishes. Fast forward to Acts 2. Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses, but when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and and they do, and they begin speaking in the known languages of everybody who was gathered so they could understand clearly the message, and they're like, what's going on? And Peter says, let me connect the dots. And he even says that what happened to Jesus, though you nailed him to a cross, this was God's pre-appointed plan for him. In other words, this is what God was always going to do, and it was necessary so that all God required would be met so that Jesus could die in our place without sin and yet being made sin on our behalf. It was God's appointed plan and see the pieces come together. And then Peter says, you need to repent. You need to change direction and change mind and believe in him. 
Well, that's when. Well, now we go from the disciples' confusion about Jesus' mission involving suffering, death, and we're going to see these two scenes where Jesus' mission is embodied by himself. We're going to go to the first scene, and the irony, there's a lot of irony in this. The irony is what the disciples could not see. This blind man that they encounter outside of Jericho does see and believe, though he couldn't tell you what color your shirt is, how tall you are, or any other features about you because he himself was physically blind. Would you glance down verses 35 to 43? And here I've entitled this, Believing is Seeing. He believes, sees with his mind's eye and with his heart before he physically sees. Okay, And it's a blind man who sees more clearly than the sighted. Uh, just want to set the scene a little bit. This is a blind man. He's also a poor man. He's a beggar. Um, the other Gospels mention this. Uh, one of the Gospels mentions two blind men, but two of the Gospels mention one, and one of those Gospels names him Bartimaeus. So it's okay if we use that name, though Luke doesn't use it here. So blind Bartimaeus probably took his usual spot that day where he would sit and he would beg his fellow Jews to help him. He had in his favor uh, a, a real encouragement uh, and, and sense of this is how we um, operate, that we give alms to the poor. So he appealed to that, he leveraged that, and he, and he begged so that he might be shown mercy, that he might have some provision. You know this uh, as well. Often those who lose one of their senses, their other senses are often heightened. And very uh, likely, because he does not have the ability to see, his sense of hearing is heightened. And I say that because of every day he heard what was going on in the streets. But now we're moving toward Passover time, so now there's more and more foot traffic as people are tra traveling through Jericho to get to um, Jerusalem. And so with this, he can tell today there's more buzz in the streets than normal. In fact, it's kind of getting, getting noisy and a little crazy is happening out there, but he can't see it. But he can hear it, and he asks others, hey, what's going on? What's all the commotion? And they tell him, well, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. What? Just imagine being Bartimaeus. Every day, this is all you've known. You cannot see, but you can hear. And you have heard of this Jesus of Nazareth. What? The one I've heard that, that healed that paralytic who was lowered through the roof and it got the Pharisees all bent out of shape? The one who stood up in the synagogue and he read from Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah 61, where it talks about giving sight to the blind. And then he put the scroll down and he said, today, this, is, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That, that Jesus, the one I heard that John the baptizer, who was supposedly pointing others to him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But then John, John started feeling doubts and he, and he sent some of his, his disciples to Hey, Jesus, are you the one, or should I look for another? And Jesus sends those messengers back saying, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. That Jesus is passing by me right now? I may never have another moment like this. This is my one shot. And he cries out with a very loud voice, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Notice what Bartimaeus doesn't call him. He doesn't call him Jesus of Nazareth. 
Now, that's not a bad title, but you know that there was another time when we see that he sees Zacchaeus. He also saw, by, uh, on a tree, he saw Nathaniel, who was sitting under a tree when Jesus wasn't there. And he said, I know that within you there's no guile. But when Nathaniel had heard about this Jesus guy from Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? What is he saying? That doesn't fit my categories. And so it's not wrong to call. We'll sing, you know, at my funeral. Y'all are all going to sing. I stand amazed at Jesus the Nazarene. Please sing it loud. But notice that he doesn't. They're putting him in human categories, at least partially. Well, the one who's Joseph, the carpenter's son, the one from Nazareth, that guy, they, they identify him geographically and humanly. Good. But this man who cannot see him, but know, hears that he's coming, he cries out, Jesus, son of David. Why is that important? Well, there was promise to David there will always be, always be a descendant of yours on the throne, the Davidic covenant, that, there, that God would always have a Davidic king. He comes from the line of David, and he will rule forever. And also elsewhere, there's allusions to that there will be healing that comes about through this one. There will be restoration that comes about through this son of David, this ultimate son of David. And he cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. But look at the reaction. Look back at the verses. Notice how the crowd responds to Bartimaeus' shouts. I mean, this is those in the crowd, perhaps in Jesus' larger entourage, followers who weren't his apostles, but also disciples, or even maybe some of the twelve. They shush him. They tell him to be quiet. Zip your lip. Perhaps they feel like, well, hey, Jesus shouldn't be delayed. Hey, hey, you have a sense of respect and decorum. Or maybe you're of no use to the Messiah. He's on his way to establish his kingdom. Bartimaeus would have been sidelined, perhaps mocked, perhaps not even spoken to often. But he, he was often... Uh, you know, be in your place and don't be a bother. Well, I love the next line. Blind Bartimaeus ignores him and he cries out all the more. Literally, in the text, it's literally, he belts out with anguished screeching. And I'm not going to screech. So I don't want to make any of you have to go to the emergency room for anxiety. But, son of David, have mercy on me. It, he's screeching. He's shrieking. And Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped. And rather than call the man to himself, this is so great, those who were shushing him, those who were silent, trying to silence him, keep him away, Jesus sends the shushers, go get him and bring him to me. And I believe in one of the other Gospels, they say, take heart or be of good cheer. Get up. He wants you to come to him. And so he does. He, he throws off his cloak and he goes. Now, he's capable of walking. He's not lame. He's just blind. So he feels his way quickly. He probably has somebody to hold on to to get there. And when he gets there, Jesus asks him a question. And it's a question he asked to get to the heart of not only him, but each of us. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? First of all, it's amazing that he stops. 
Second of all, it's just like Jesus to make this a teachable moment for his disciples. And this is why I'm saying both of these scenes are Jesus embodying his mission. He came for such as these. He came for the outsider, the ones who are picked last, the pickup game, those who are left out, those who are sidelined. And we see in Zacchaeus, those who are deep in their own sin. So those are the ones I came for. But what do you want me to do for you? Well, you could say, well, Jesus, that's obvious. I mean, what's, that's even cruel for you to ask. No, he wants to get to the heart. He wants to get to the heart of what is your heart of hearts desire? And my question to you before we move on to the rest is, is how would you answer that question? Jesus is passing by, and we believe the Lord is present with us today. If he's passing by, you're not here by accident. And if he's asking you, based on what's currently going on in your life, based on what's kept you up last night, based on what your mind is racing about right now, based on what makes you feel anxious or frustrated or you can't make sense of in your life, or what makes you feel ashamed or empty or alone, how would you answer? What do you want me to do for you right now? Now, this isn't a, um, a vending machine. I'm really only saying he wants to know that because he wants to know what's real pulsating in your heart. He wants to know what that is because he wants to meet you right where you are. So not seeing and yet seeing and believing. The irony is the man who couldn't physically see has more spiritual insight than the disciples. And also in here is the nation who's already rejected him through their leaders. They, don't, they can't put it together and they rejected Jesus as Messiah. And God has enabled this sightless man to see and believe. Then Jesus gives him physical sight. He says, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Now it's actually not the man's faith the man's faith didn't heal him. His faith allowed him to receive healing from the one and the only one who can heal him. Uh, he is in contrast to earlier in Luke 18, the rich young ruler who actually could physically see and could even begin to put together what Jesus was offering him in terms of following him, but he walked away sad. He says, I can't let go of my grip on my wealth. That's my security, my significance. Bartimaeus, unlike the rich young ruler, believed in Jesus, then saw, and he glorified God. And notice the crowds, they saw too. At first, they saw him as a nuisance and somebody to be ignored or sidelined. They couldn't see why Jesus would be bothered by this blind man. But notice the response at the end of verse 43. When all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Now to the second scene. This is one that's very familiar to us. The second scene of Jesus' mission embodied. It's another man who can't see, but it's not because he's physically blind, but because he is vertically challenged. He is too short, and the crowds are too full and maybe too tall for him. If we were to cast the role, I, I, I steal this from somebody else I heard this week. If we were to cast the role of um, Zacchaeus for a movie, we would, we would cast Danny DeVito or maybe Kevin Hart. Okay, a little shorter. If you're shorter, don't be, 
don't be hurt by me saying those things. Be encouraged that Jesus took time with this wee little man that we sang about when we were kids, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Well, that's why he couldn't physically see him, but he's in Jericho as well, and he takes off to try to get to where he could see him. He can't see because of the crowds, so he does the most indignified thing, and he climbs a tree to see him. Now, notice in verse 1 how he's described, or verse 2, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He's probably extremely rich. And there's irony in this passage as well. Zacchaeus, the, his word, his name means, comes from um, words that mean righteous or pure. Zacchaeus was far from that. No one would have thought, well, you know, who's most likely to be pleasing to God this year in the yearbook? Not Zacchaeus. He's far from that, and he is not only not righteous, he is despised because he is a tax collector. Now, he's a chief tax collector in a very important city. One other thing to tell you about Jericho, it was called the City of Palms. Also had lots of roses, lots of cypress trees, lots of balsam groves. So it was a very fragrant place, a very beautiful place. Had kind of that enviable um, climate, if you will. It was a place where it was a, a city where many priests lived. It was a city where many soldiers lived. It was a great city of commerce. It was a very important city. And it was one of three in the region that kind of where the, because you have all this commerce, you got to have some tax. Caesar's got to get his cut. And one of three uh, tax farming centers, if you will. And Zacchaeus is either chief in like he's, he's killing it more than anybody else, or he's chief in terms of he's over others who are also collecting the taxes. And I've, you've heard this before, but the reason why they despise him, his fellow Jews, is because he's bilking his own people. He's cheating and extorting his fellow Jews because what they would do is they would buy into the, the tax system with the Romans. Like, hey, I'll, pay, I'll buy this piece of business, if you will. Now I can charge what I want. Here's what the Romans need tax-wise. I'm going to go above and beyond that. Maybe start at 10% more than that, and then 20 He's like, I'm not satisfied, 25%. You could do whatever you wanted as a tax collector because the Romans got their cut. They don't care how you mistreat your people. They kind of probably take sick enjoyment out of that. But because of that, he was considered for sure an outcast, someone unclean and a sinner. And so Jesus has already met with Bartimaeus, and he and his disciples are continuing on, maybe in the middle of the city. Um, and more and more travelers are coming out to try to see him. Zacchaeus, one of them. And a question would have been, they would have heard of Jesus of Nazareth. They would have known he's coming with his entourage. There's a buzz in the city about it. And the question would have been, I wonder who will get the honor to host Jesus to spend the night. Because you would stop here before you'd make your way. It's like all of you who go to Florida, you're either like, do we stay in Baton Rouge or Jackson? Usually Jackson. <laughs> Baton Rouge, sorry. Right? You're going to stop somewhere, and then you're going to finish the trip. And there I'm wondering who, because in their culture, hospitality was a, an immensely highly, highly valued value. And you would have jumped at the chance, and they did in Jericho. They, they, they cherished that they were a place of hosting. And who's going to get it? Perhaps it'll be one of the most distinguished priests around here. Oh, the shock 
when they find out where Jesus decides to spend the night. So Zacchaeus is trying to, to see Jesus. Why? He's, he's um, unable to see, so he climbs into the sycamore tree in order to see. But why? Why is this tax collector who's on the outside of the Jewish community and shunned and hated and despised, why is he trying to see this Jewish rabbi from up in the Galilean area? Why? Well, tax collectors don't have a lot of friends. So they probably have tax collector conventions to at least get together and go, hey, you know, let's, let's at least pat each other on the back. And so they enjoyed some level of camaraderie that way but they were ostracized in their own communities. And so perhaps he went to the regional convention. Perhaps he was so important that he was a speaker at the Galilean convention, and he came across and got to know Levi or Matthew. What do we know about Matthew or Levi in Luke's gospel? Well, Jesus got in trouble with the religious leaders there. Why? Because he called Matthew or called Levi to be one of his followers. And then he threw a party. And guess who came to that? The tax collectors and sinners. And guess who was right up in there? Jesus. In Luke 7, the, the woman who, um, it, it, he's at a Pharisee's house. And she comes to wash his feet with her tears. And that, that religious leader goes, if he knew what sort of woman this is. And then Jesus said, well, let me tell you a story. Why does he tell that story? Because for the first time in a long time, perhaps, that woman was seen and dignified. And you just keep going. Luke 15, he tells the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son or the prodigal son. But the whole context is he's sitting there with those who are on the outside and some religious leaders who were grumbling as to why does he hang out with tax collectors and sinners? You think there's a theme? You think there's a consistency that embodies why he came and for whom he came? So Zacchaeus knew, well, maybe if Levi or Matthew had a shot, and maybe if those others who were in that crowd that day when he told that story about the prodigal son, maybe I've got a shot. Maybe this is a moment I could just catch a glimpse of him. And so like a child... Earlier in Luke 18, unless you are like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of God. This dignified, rich man probably, you know, pushed up his fancy suit, business suit, and, and climbed up in that tree. Undignified, he didn't care. I got to catch a glimpse. And notice what will probably dawn on him later is he thought he was going to go and find Jesus, see Jesus, catch a glimpse of Jesus. And the whole time, the whole point would be, I want you to know you're seen and sought by me. Because look at the next verse. After he's in the tree, they're passing by, and Jesus looked up. When he came to the place, verse 5, he looked up, and he said, Zacchaeus. How in the world did he know his name? We don't know. Maybe somebody told him. Maybe he said, who's that guy in the tree? But more than likely, I think it's similar to Nathaniel when he wasn't with Nathaniel, but he said, I saw you under the tree. Nathaniel knew he was wrestling with some things that he wasn't easy about in his soul. The same thing, I think, why, what pressed Zacchaeus to be so undignified and to get wherever he could to get a glimpse of Jesus? I think it was, there's something missing. Just like the rich young ruler, his wealth, his lifestyle was unsatisfying. There's something not hitting. And he had this sense of unease and emptiness about his life. But Jesus looks at him. 
and he calls him by name. And Zacchaeus, come down. I must stay at your house today. This is nerding on you for a minute, but, but there's, a, there's that one word that might say it's necessary or must in your Bible. Luke uses it constantly. This must happen. When he told his disciples, this must happen when I go to Jerusalem, all these things because they were written about, this must happen today. It's not just a, you know, I mean, it'd kind of be nice. I don't know if I don't want to bother you, but maybe I could stay at your house. It's, it's, it's basically he's insisting. He's inviting himself there, and he says, here's why. It's a divine necessity. When, when Luke uses this one little term, it's a divine necessity. All authority and God's plan is moving forward, and this is part of that. It wasn't just the biggies of the cross. It was Zacchaeus in the tree. Today, I'm gonna, I, must, I must stay at your house. And Zacchaeus bolts down, got those little legs churning, and he was thrilled. He was exhilarated. And it says that he welcomed him gladly. Literally, it's he welcomed him. And we don't know if it's the idea of like, yeah, 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 come on. And they stayed there or they actually got to the house now. We don't know. Luke will condense some details because he wants to convey one thing and not all the details sometimes. But it, but it literally is um, he welcomed him with rejoicing. So just like blind Bartimaeus who called out, I think there's a lot of clamor and noise now that this man who is now noticed and called by Jesus, and he says, I want you to be the one that I stay at your house. And so when they saw, verse 7, when they saw it, they all began to grumble. Mm. We see this word elsewhere. It's to mutter. It's the, the guttural disapproval. Ugh. The rolling of the eyes, the clicking of the tongue, the complaint. Why? Because it doesn't fit what they think would be right. If anyone would be chosen as host for Jesus, it should not be this man. He's as far from God as you can get in their minds. They're off mission, not Jesus. And then Zacchaeus, uh, they say, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, maybe he heard that, or maybe they're already in the house, but we know that Jesus knew that that was what was said. And we don't know if they had a meal, and Jesus can continue to explain, and he invited him to understand the gospel as he would present it. We don't know that. Luke doesn't give us all that. But at some point, not only did he feel seen, but he, he saw it and understood his need. And he says, you're the one I'm looking for. You're the one who's missing. I am a great sinner, and I trust you as my Savior. However he said it, we don't know. <laughs> the doctrinal committee that would have gone to inspect later would probably would have been disappointed with what Jesus presented and how the guy responded. But this guy's a believer, make no doubt. How do we know? Because of the spill out of his life of repentance that wasn't just, yeah, I'm kind of sorry for that. It's like, no, I'm going to now go make restitution. I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. That's a generosity. His generosity didn't, I mean, then Jesus says, today salvation's come. Jesus isn't saying your generosity got you accepted. He's saying you have experienced my love, forgiveness, and acceptance, and you belong to me. And now the spill out 
The overflow is generosity. It's not the means of redemption, but it's an expression of being redeemed and a rejoicing heart. And he says, you are part of the family. He also is in contrast to the rich young rulers, a rare example. He goes through the eye of the needle. Rare example of a rich person entering the kingdom. But why? Verse 10, and this is where we end. Verse 10, this is the key verse in all the gospel of Luke. Verse 9, today salvation has come to this house. He's the son of Abraham. He's in the family. For, he's given the reason. For the son of man, speaking of Jesus, came to seek or has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You lost Zacchaeus? Yeah, you're a sinner. You're outside of right relationship with God. You are lost. You're part of the house. I mean, salvation has come to this house. You are saved. You belong to God's family because you're exactly the one that I came for. And those like you who understand their desperate need for the forgiveness of sins, that they are desperately unable on their own to climb their way to God. He says, that's my mission. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save, not those who have their lives put together, but those who go, my life is so unraveled, and I'm a big part of that, and I'm a sinner. And Jesus helps them put it together to see that he's the one they need. He's the Savior. He's the healer. He's the restorer. He says, that's my mission. Well, we see that some in this passage, and they're seeing, they didn't quite get that. The disciples couldn't put some stuff together. They will later. The crowds and maybe the disciples wanted to keep the blind man out. And then those who muttered and grumbled, says when they saw it, they began to grumble that he would interface with Zacchaeus at all, let alone stay at his house. And he says, that's why I've come. That's what those who are my ambassadors also represent. The question would be, am I a mutterer and a grumbler? Or am I so glad for what he's done in my life that I want somebody else to know I see you? I want somebody else to know it's okay you don't have it together because I don't either. And I just want to take you to him. For the blind man, he's an example that believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. And he didn't want to miss that moment. He never knew if that moment would come again. He's like, I got to shout out. It doesn't matter. And it makes me think of an old, old hymn most of you never heard. It's pass me not, O gentle Savior. Just listen to these words. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on others you are calling, do not pass me by. Savior, Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others you are calling, do not pass me by. You may not be like the blind man, but you may be like Zacchaeus. You may be here and going, I've had my life together, but there is something missing. And, and I'm just realizing that I, I've kind of tried to catch a glimpse here or there of Jesus, or maybe I came today thinking maybe I will. And maybe for the first time you're understanding that, wait a second, what's missing in my life, though I got everything else, is I don't have a personal relationship with him. I want you to hear this is the moment he's passing you by. This is the moment he is saying, I came for those who are like you. 
broken, misfit, sinner who's on the outs of the outs of the outs. He says, I know all your secret sins. I know all your ones that are visible. And that ignites my heart to move toward you for the son of man, for Jesus came to seek and to save and put your name in the blank. What I would encourage you is, we don't, they didn't know if he'd ever pass by through Jericho again. Don't ignore that if that's where you are, particularly if you're not a believer or for us who are believers like Zacchaeus, at times, though we do belong to him, we lose our way. And we get to a place where like, I can't, life doesn't make sense and life hurts and life is tiring and exhausting. And I just, I've got this unease gnawing at me. I want you to realize in this passage, he sees you. He pursues you. If you think about it, right after he tells Zacchaeus, you're in. You're forgiven. You belong to the family. You're in. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Basically, Zacchaeus, it must have hit him. Wait, so you actually, it's not that I was, I've just, I've been seen. You actually were looking for me. You were looking for me. This is not an accident. And hear that today. If you've lost your way, if you have an unease gnawing at you, it may be God's mercy so that you might perk your ears to him today. You might open your heart to him today. Augustine wrote this. We know he wrote, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, but He also wrote this, looking back on how God pursued and drew him to himself, because he was a man who was involved in sensuality and all kind of lust and other sins. He, He writes about it. But Augustine said this when he looked back on, probably like Zacchaeus, hey, I found the Lord. No, actually, he found me. Augustine wrote, your goad, which is like a poking stick, your goad was thrusting at my heart, giving me no peace, until the eye of my soul could discern you without mistake. Like Zacchaeus and Augustine, perhaps you're here because you've been wanting to catch a glimpse of Jesus. You've been drawn to him by the severe mercy of your own dissatisfaction. Don't miss the moment. Know that he sees you. Hear him calling you to himself. Receive his grace and receive him gladly. We're not going to sing because I went too long. I apologize. I want to pray, and then we'll give us a benediction. Lord, I pray that if there are folks here who they feel like their life is mangled, they feel like they're shushed, not by people verbally shushing them, but they're just kind of ignored. If they feel, if they feel like that's where they've been, and they've, they've wanted a moment where you might bring them to an encounter with yourself and bring them to a place of restoration, of relationship, of security, of, of getting what is the point of my life, Lord, that you might hear them saying, do not pass me by. Oh, gentle Savior, do not pass me by. Have mercy on me. I pray you would meet them right now with your mercy. And Lord, many of us like Zacchaeus, many of us who are believers, at times can get ourselves off the rails, can get ourselves so self-involved, can be about things that actually they promised life and 
satisfaction and freedom, and yet we find ourselves more enslaved, more entangled, more, more just kind of out of pocket than we ever have before. And I pray that you would help us to know that you see us, that you invite us to know that you care, that you love us, and your grace is available, your mercy is available today. And I pray that those brothers and sisters would respond and not pass you by as you are with and meeting with them right now. And I think of the hymn, And Can It Be? May that be a refrain that you hit our hearts again, that not only did you go and seek out Zacchaeus, but however it is that each person in here who knows you, they came to know you because probably someone came and shared with them, but it was someone that they wouldn't have expected or someone that reached them in a moment when they were really down and out or they would have been on the outside. They would have been ignored. But you were pursuing them through that person who cared, through that person who, who cried with them, who, who shared with them, who said, I notice you, and God loves you. And like that hymn, and can it be, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me, who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Hit our hearts with gratitude today as we leave this place that we might welcome others as those who would embody your kingdom mission, as those who would represent you. May we not be so enamored with the all put together in our world, but may we have the eyes of Jesus to see those right around us who are hurting, who are last, who are lost. May they know the love of Jesus by, through our hands and feet, through our notice, through our care. Would you be glorified? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? I'm going to give us a benediction from Ephesians 1. This prayer is one that Mike Holmes often prays um, for others. He's prayed it for me before. It's Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1 with a little bit of today added in. May the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you eyes to behold him in a spirit of wisdom and of revelation to know him more and to know that you are seen by him. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Have a great week. Thank you.